We're going to be looking, uh, we're going to have, I've given up on trying to do a one sermon survey over these books. So we're going to be in Jonah here for at least two sermons. Two uh, is the plan. And we're going to be uh, uh, talking here about uh, the God who relentlessly pursues us. He is the one who, who comes after us. This is a fish a story, as you know. It's a real story about a real prophet. It's not an allegory. It's not a myth. So a lot of people who would read this, even people in the, in the church world, who would try to say that this is some kind of made-up story, and we can get off track big time and miss the whole point of the book of Jonah, trying to figure out all the details of how a man got swallowed by a fish. But that's what the Bible says, and that's what we believe. And it was a literal fish. And uh, it was a literal swallowing of Jonah. He's called to, to preach. He's called to go and to preach a message of coming judgment to a Gentile empire, specifically a Gentile city called Nineveh. And he doesn't like that calling. He doesn't like the, the fact that God has uh, called him to this specific group of people, and so he decides to run. And so this is an account, a true historical account, of a prophet who is called not specifically to a, um, not specifically to the southern kingdom and not specifically to the northern kingdom, although he is from the northern kingdom, Israel. But it's about him prophesying to this group of Gentiles. And by the way, anytime you see the word Gentile in the Bible, you say, well, what does Gentile mean? I don't even know what we're talking about when we're talking about Jews and Gentiles. A Gentile is simply somebody who's not a Jew. So it doesn't matter if you're black, white, red, brown, whatever color you may be, if you are not a Jew, then according to the scripture, you are called a Gentile. And so instead of being called to the uh, Jewish people, this is a different book in the sense that he is called to a Gentile people, a people who are not God's chosen people in the Old Testament, but a people who God nonetheless cares about very much. And this is a message about the fact that God cares about all peoples. Even though he has worked through in the Old Testament, his people Israel, we see even in the Old Testament, God is very clear that he cares about the nations of the world. He doesn't just care about Israel. He's not interested in just saving the Jewish people. Yes, they have a special plan. Yes, they have been given special blessings of God. But he cares deeply about other people groups. He cares about us. And the wonder of wonders is that the Lord has called us so that we know him. That we have been brought into a relationship with the Lord. It's an absolute miracle. Anytime you begin to think about God's mercy to you and the fact that he cares about you, it's a reminder of the fact that he loves different people and different people groups and he loves you specifically. What a message. The word Jonah means dove. A dove in the, um, the Old Testament was a, um, was a silly bird. And so when we're talking here about a dove here, as far as the meaning of Jonah, we are, we've got two preachers going on here this morning. 
Um, we're talking about somebody who's rather silly. Jonah is silly in many ways. The scripture says here that he's the son of Amittai, which means son of my faithfulness. And this story is a true story about the relentless pursuit of God after us, after people. He comes after Jonah in this book. He comes after the sailors through Jonah. And eventually he's coming through the prophet of Jonah to the people of Nineveh. He's a God who pursues. God relentlessly pursues us. The clear message of Scripture is that we do not pursue God in our own flesh. We don't have an interest in God, none of us. None of us pursues God. The scripture is absolutely clear that God is the one who pursues us. Now the scripture tells us that we must pursue him. But because we're talking here about a fish account, we don't run after God until we have first been caught by God. So we don't actually start our pursuit of God until he has first come and he has changed our hearts and he has bent our hearts toward him so that as a result of that, we now pursue him. So God is the ultimate chaser. He is the living God who comes after his people. And when he wants to come after somebody, he comes after them. And there is nothing in heaven or there is nothing in hell, there is nothing on the earth that can stop the call of God on somebody's life. Somebody can be sitting here and listening to the word of God being preached and being so moved they hear this internal call as they are saying, that's for me, I need that. That's, that's, that message is not just, we're not just reading something in history, but I sense God's pursuit of me personally. So we don't pursue him first. He pursues us first. Out of all of the religions in the world, listen, all of the other religions in the world are about man's pursuit of God in their own flesh. Making up a God of their own imagination, trying to pursue a God who's, who's out there by their good deeds or, or their works, trying and striving to get after this God of their own imagination, trying to win his approval, this is the God of every false religion. It's a false God. It's an imaginary God. And Paul even says that it's really the God of demons. That behind every idol, behind every false God is actually a demonic force. And so whether we're talking about the gods of Hinduism or we're talking about Allah, listen, Allah is not just the same God we all worship just with a different name. There are many people who think that. They think, well, there's all sorts of different religions out in the world, and we're all just worshiping the same God. We just all call him different names. If you're in college, you'll hear this taught. If they talk at all about God, you'll hear atheism, you'll hear agnosticism, but you'll also hear we're all just worshiping the same God. When we think about the government, and we think about even a recent prayer breakfast with our president, we see all these different religions represented as if all of these religions are, we're just all this one big happy family. No, we're not. The Bible says in John that to as many as believed in him, that is Jesus Christ, he gave the right to become the children of God. 
So we're not born the children of God, and it's not just a matter of getting religion. That's not what this is. This is not about somebody who says, well, I read something recently where uh, dad has a, has a wife, they have a baby, so now it's time to get religion and raise little Johnny in church. That's not what this is about. When we read the book of Jonah, we are reading about a living God who pursues his people with reckless abandon and catches them and changes their heart and turns their heart in such a way that they want then to pursue God. The only reason anybody in this church runs after God, pursues God, goes into the pursuit of God and his holiness is because God has done an awesome work of regeneration, making that person alive in Christ to where they wake up and they say, we want this. And there's nothing that we can do to make another person do that. It is simply the sovereign work of God. So in Jonah, we have this God, this living God, who is pursuing and pursuing a number of people, not only pursuing the prophet, not only pursuing the sailors, but also pursuing a whole group of people who are outside of the people of Israel. E.W. Tozer says this, he says, when we pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs this pursuit, no man can come to me, said our Lord, except the Father which has sent me, draw him, end quote. That's what Tozer said. E.W. Tozer quoting Jesus. We pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge, he's put this urge within us that spurs this pursuit. So if you love God this morning, you should be going to yourself, Lord, thank you for putting uh, this miracle in my heart to want you. And so as a result of reading this and going through this, the hope is if you're an unbeliever sitting here, in this church that he will begin to knock down walls knocking down walls knocking down the thought that this is just some unsupernatural event you can just make a choice if you want get into a little religion and then get out of religion I was recently I sat down with Ariel and I was talking to her about this notion of you can lose your salvation and she was hearing it taught that you could lose your salvation because what was being said is, look, if you make a choice to get into this thing, you can just make a choice to jump out. You just make a choice to follow Christ, to just kind of jump in. And by the way, we have a lot of people doing that. We have a lot of people just kind of making haphazard decisions or perhaps even emotional decisions in the moment, but it's not deeply rooted. It's not supernatural. And so we sat down and we began to talk about the fact that this all begins with the doctrine of sin. Unless you believe that man and woman is dead in sin, unable, listen, and unwilling to come to Christ, you are not able to come to Christ. You're not able. What can a dead person do? They can do nothing. What can a person with no ability do? They can do nothing. So when we're talking about God, there is nothing that anybody can do to make somebody able to bring himself to God. And not only is a person unable, 
they are also unwilling. That is, they hear the word of God with physical ears. They have a soul. Every person has a soul. Every person here is created in the image of God. Every person here is precious and, uh, and beautiful. But we're unwilling. And so God comes to us and he speaks to us. But unless our heart is changed, unless we understand the deadness of sin, for you were dead, Ephesians tells us, you were dead in trespasses and sins. That doesn't mean you were kind of a little bit alive. That doesn't mean you were partially alive. You were partially able or partially willing. And so what we need is a God from the outside. This is why Christians pray for non-believers, because they're not able to help themselves. It's, it's the living who weep over the dead. The dead don't have the ability to weep over themselves. You say, well, I'm praying for somebody. I'm praying for them. I'm praying for them. What are you praying for? It's wonderful to pray. We need to be praying for those people. What are we praying for? That they just uh, finally wake up and make just a, a, a nice little decision? No, no. We're, we're, we're praying to God. Remember, we're going to a living God. That's what prayer is. And we're praying to a living God, and we're saying, God, would you do something in their life? Would you awaken them to the truth? Because they don't see it. They don't see it. You ever sit down with somebody who just doesn't see the spiritual truth of Christ? You think to yourself, why don't you just make a decision here? Why don't you see it? Why do we pray for people? Why, why do we pray? Because we are, we are praying to a God who relentlessly pursues people. And he is the only one who has the ability to wake people up from the dead. It's the same thing as what happened in John chapter 11 when uh, Jesus is calling Lazarus out from the tomb. He didn't say, Yoo-hoo, Lazarus, you're a little bit alive in there. Do you want to come on out and play? That's not what he said. In fact, I don't think that's in the text anywhere. What he did say was, Lazarus, come forth. He raised him from the dead. And it's the same picture about what happens to us who are unable and unwilling to come to Christ. Is the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as the gospel goes forward, we must be awakened to the truth and we're awakened to the truth that we were never the ones who were pursuing God in the first place. It was him who was pursuing us all along and who showed us this wonderful truth. So perhaps if you're an unbeliever, God will use this in your life to open your mind, as Jesus said, to open your mind to the scriptures, to open your heart to the truth so that you see how much he loves you and the fact that he wants to save you. And the first cry of a newborn baby is faith. So as I'm sitting there talking with my daughter, we are talking about the fact that somebody must be raised from the spiritually dead. And if they've been raised from the spiritually dead, and that is the power of Christ, they can never lose that. You can't do anything to be born, and you can't do anything to be unborn. What did you do to be born? Nothing. What did you do to be born again? Nothing. It is the power of God. What can you do to be unborn? Nothing. And I looked at her and I said to her, listen, if, if someone were to come and say to you, it's possible for you not to be your father's daughter anymore, that's impossible. I said, no matter what you do, no matter where you go in life, your father will always love you, and he will always be your father. 
And it's the same thing with our Father who has raised us to newness in life. He will always be our Father. So people will say, well, I knew somebody who came to Christ and they said you can just go sin as much as you want and then you can still go to heaven and there's no change in their life. That's not true quickening. That's not truly being made alive in Christ. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about just somebody saying, you yeah, I'll follow Jesus and now I got a ticket to heaven and there's nothing that anybody can do to take that ticket from me. This is not easy believism. You just kind of jump into the kingdom and then God says, well, I'm bound to it. You're, you're going to definitely go to heaven. No, no, this is somebody must be awakened to the fact of there's truth in if, and it's a big if, if that person has been born again, they can never lose their salvation if they have been truly born again. And so perhaps if you're sitting here and you're an unbeliever, you'll see the supernatural work of God in your life. And perhaps even as you're seated here or thinking about this in the coming days, you begin to think, that's for me. I, I need Jesus. I really need to be saved. I really need to be converted. And perhaps you've been somebody who's been running from God and you're a Christian. Listen, true Christians can run from God. True Christians who are on their way to heaven can get hardened and uh, have horrible moments and even extended periods of time in their life where they're rebelling against the Lord and yet they really are saved. That's absolutely possible. It's happened in many Christians' lives. It's a tragic, it's a tragic occurrence, but it happens. And so perhaps for that person, they will be softened here to think about the fact that God loved them and called them in the beginning. Jonah's written in the 8th century, perhaps around 780 B.C. We know this. This is actually more uh, firm uh, dating because we actually have a verse that specifically tells us when he was a prophet. If you go over to 2 Kings with me, 2 Kings chapter um, 14. 2 Kings chapter 14, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Now this Jeroboam is not the original Jeroboam. This is the second Jeroboam, who's many kings later in Israel. So um, Jonah is a prophet from Galilee. By the way, the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they would say, Is a prophet, can a prophet come from Galilee? Well, Jesus wasn't the only prophet that came from Galilee. Jonah was also a prophet from Galilee. We know that because of this uh, verse here in 2 Kings 14. It says here, He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord. So these are successful times in Israel. They are having some pressure coming from Assyria. But at this point, they have not been conquered yet. So this is 780 or so, they would end up being conquered in 722. But these are good times. Things are going well. People have uh, money. Life is going fairly smoothly in the kingdom. And God is concerned not only with their lax spirit against the Lord, but he's also concerned about the surrounding nations, and he's in particular concerned about the kingdom of Assyria. The Lord God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. There it is again. So we have this same Jonah, the prophet, who was from, and we know he's from Galilee because it says here, who was from Gath, 
heifer. So this is this prophet, and he is called by God to do something rather extraordinary. He is called by God to go to preach to this kingdom of people that he does not want to preach to. So around 780 B.C., God comes to him and speaks to him and says to him, I want you to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. I want you to go preach to them. So I want you to leave Israel, and I want you to take a, a journey of over 500 miles, which even in our day is a pretty good trip, but it's a really good trip if you don't have a car or a plane. Perhaps all you have is a donkey or a horse, or maybe you're even walking. And he says to Jonah, I want you to go preach. So we all need to get this picture. Jonah is from Israel. The Jews, in many ways, were a proud people. They were the chosen people of God. It was about them. They had received the word of God. They had received the prophecies. They had been brought out of Egypt by a mighty hand. And so they relish that. And they look around the world, the known world, and they're looking at these different nations, and they see them as less than. They, they had pride in their heart. We've talked about the pride of Edom, but Jacob also had pride in his heart. And so God comes and he calls Jonah, and he says, I want you to go. Look with me at Jonah chapter 1. He says, I want you to go. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. There it is in verse 1. Saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. We know Nineveh was actually settled by Nimrod. What a nice name that is, Nimrod. If you go back to Genesis chapter 10, you can see this in Genesis chapter uh, 10, verse, um, verse 8. Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. It says this, Cush fathered Nimrod. Verse 8, Genesis 10. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Helna, and the land of Shinar. From that land, here it is, he went to Assyria. So Assyria is this long-standing empire that had existed in different levels of strength for centuries. So Nimrod goes, he goes into Assyria, and he builds Nineveh. You see it there in the text. So the city that has descended from Nimrod is the city that God calls Jonah to. God calls Jonah to Nineveh. He says, go to that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. There are sinful and wicked people. And so we have this story, instead of Jonah saying, as a believer, yes, Lord, that should be the response of every believer when God comes calling. So he is pursuing Jonah. Jonah is minding his own business. He is not, he's not in his bedroom going, oh, Lord, I just want to reach out to the people of Assyria. Would you just send me? He's not saying send me to the nations. That was not his heart. This is God coming in and saying, Jonah, I want you to go and preach, and I want you to preach a message of judgment. 
for the sins of this wicked empire has come up before me, and the time for their judgment is ripe. So you have Jonah the prophet, very simple storyline. He's being called by God. He's being called by God to go and preach. And his message here is not initially here, although it's going to include repentance. It's really just a message of God saying, John, I want you to go and I want you just to tell the city, this large city. By the way, where do you where do you even begin to start when you think about that? God calls somebody to a city and says, I want you to go preach to them, this big city of hundreds of thousands of people, for that's what it was. You even talk about a little city, as was even mentioned earlier, this little town here in Wilkes-Barre. God says to somebody, I want you to go and I want you to preach to to Wilkes-Barre. Where do you start? Who's going to listen? Where do you go? Do you go into the, to the market square? Do you just begin to shout aloud? How does that work? I remember when I first came here, and we had so few in this church, literally so few. We had a person come here who was uh, such a, a, a gentleman, such a nice man, but he used to tell me, Jacob, preach to the chairs. Preach to the chairs. And and I would think about that, and I think about this with him. Where where do you start? Where do you go? This is what God is, God is doing, and he's saying to him, I'm calling you to be a preacher. I'm calling you to go out, and I'm calling you to go and say a message of judgment. That's simply what I want you to do. Are you going to obey? Now listen, believers, not just non-Christians, believers have the ability to say, no, Lord, no, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the call in my life, but appreciate what you're saying to me. But I'm not going to listen. The Holy Spirit has a way of uh, indicating what he wants us to do in our life. He has a way of, and he's so gentle, and he's so kind, and he's so sweet. But he has a way of impressing upon our heart what it is exactly he wants us to do. Maybe he's, maybe he's pressing on our heart. You need, to go, you need to go to church more. You need to be in church. You need to stop making excuses about why you can't go to church. You say, well, it's this and well, it's that. And yet the weeks are ticking by. The months are ticking by. You don't have forever. And so the Lord is impressing on somebody's heart. You need to go to church. You need to be faithful. And you say, well, I like church sometimes, but you're resisting. You're saying no. Have you ever seen a little, little child? I remember when our, you know, little, uh, little children have a, an ability to stiffen their body. Have you ever seen that? No. And that's what we sometimes do with the Lord. He says, I want you to do this. I want you to be, believer, more involved in church. I want you to be more involved in church. I, I, I don't want you to just I don't want you to just say, well, it's just about Sunday morning and perhaps Wednesday night. But really developing relationships within the church. No. Perhaps it's tithing. Lord's laying it on our heart to take that step of actually giving a tenth of our income. He said, well, we'll give part of it. Lord, we'll, we'll give some of it. We'll give maybe a percent. Stiffening our body and saying no. And the days are ticking by. Listen, your children need you in church. Not twice a month. Not once a month. Not twice a year, but do you like it? You see, if God is calling, 
He's saying, but I'm resisting the call of God. I'm turning my back to him. It's a person saying, no, Lord, no, Lord. So it's not just, it's not just the unbeliever that can do that. And little, little, little eyes are watching. They're watching. They're watching. It could be a whole host of different things. So Jonah does something very interesting here. He flees. It says in verse uh, 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, we, we don't know where Tarshish is. Scholars don't actually know. They can't pinpoint where Tarshish is. We know that it is in the opposite direction of where he was called. So he is, he is called over to the east, to the northeast, to go to Assyria. And he says, I'm going to go to Joppa, to this Mediterranean port. And it's very likely that the city of Tarshish, where he's trying to head to, is actually in Spain, west. So God comes to him and says, I want you to go to preach to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And he's sitting there thinking, I'm not going. And uh, I'm going to actually try to run from the presence of the Lord. Now, he knows God is omnipresent. He knows that. You think, well, that's ridiculous, Jonah. You don't know that God is everywhere? But he's trying to get away from his speaking presence. He's trying to get away from the manifest presence of God. Maybe if I can just take a trip to California, God won't bug me as much. Maybe if my circumstances change, maybe what I need is a trip to Tahiti, and if I go in the opposite direction of where God is calling me, then things will be different. The circumstances will be different there. Isn't it interesting that no matter where you go, God's there? And if he calls you in a certain place, he's not going to stop calling just because you decide to go somewhere else. Listen, there are people who do this. They think that their happiness is in moving. Oh, I hate this area. You heard people say that? Oh, I, I hate this. Listen, when I lived in Texas, you have people in Texas that are miserable. You go to Ohio, people are miserable. And there are people that think, if I could just get to Florida, i just get to Florida, have a nice little house on a golf course, and I can uh, make sandcastles with my husband or wife every day, all day long. That doesn't sound fun. Okay, so that's, that's what we're going to just do all day long, every day. If I can just get away. And God is saying, no, but I've called you here. You know what I have found in life? People make the place. People make the place. You know why I love it here? Because I love you guys. I mean that. I, I love this church. And if you have relationships with people and you know people and uh, you're settled in, life is good. God will take care of you. He'll provide for you, whether he's called you to the northern part of Alaska or the southern part of South America, he promises he will take care of you. But we need to be listening to his voice. God, what are you calling me to do? And sometimes we can have all the right reasons of why we're supposed to do what we're doing, and it's actually the wrong move. I remember a number of years ago, Crystal and I were convinced that we should move to Washington, D.C. to be a part of a ministry down there. I even quit my job, took another job down there. And about three days in, I realized this was all good in the head, but it wasn't from the Lord. Quit my job, came back. God's provided for us ever since. It wasn't the Lord. 
So sometimes you can have things in your head that sound good, that seem good. But God is saying, no, no, this is not where I'm leading you. And what we need to be doing is we need to be men of integrity. We're after the men here this morning. Men of integrity who say, I'm going to church. I'm going to be a godly man by the grace of God. I'm going to be a loving, godly husband or a godly single person. And I'm going to pursue God because he has first pursued me. This, this passionate pursuit of men, of Jonah, going after God. And that's only possible because he has first come after us. So God comes and he says to Jonah, he says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it. And he decided to go in the opposite direction. Now we might say, well, maybe he just doesn't want to go there. I mean, it's a trip and, uh, and he, doesn't, he doesn't like uh, the climate there or whatever. He, he had, but that's not necessarily the reason. It wasn't only that the Jews saw the Gentiles as inferior. It was that the people of Assyria were mean. They were cruel. In fact, the Assyrians mastered the art of torture. They were the ones who invented impaling people. So they would take their enemies and they would hurl them off a wall and they would impale them on a stick outside the city. And they would let their bodies, while they're still alive, slide down the, slide down the pole until they finally died. They mastered the art of nastiness and cruelty to people, to their enemies. When they would take their chariots into battle, they would even line up along a rut, a row of people's heads. So everybody's laying down with their heads, and then they'd run their chariots with their huge iron wheels. They would run them over this rut and just crush people's heads. They loved beheading people. They loved dismembering people. They loved chopping their, their arms off and their legs off. They liked blinding them. And they would often put, um, put the skins of the people, they would flay them like a steak, and they would take the skins of their enemies and they would put them on poles or on the wall outside of the city so that whenever somebody was coming and approaching, they knew that this city meant business. This is one disgusting practice. One of their own poets wrote this about one of their kings. Here's, here's the level of their cruelty. He slits the wombs of pregnant women. They took delight in this. Women who are alive, pregnant, they'd slit them open. He blinds the infants and he cuts the throat of their strong ones. Cruel. So when we read this, we go, oh, why didn't, why didn't Jonah get up and just go? Well, first of all, he's proud, but second of all, he's looking at this group of people and he's saying, I don't want to go. Would you? I don't, I don't want to go to this people. They're mean. They kill people. They hurt people. Can you imagine getting a call from God in the middle of the night saying, hey, I want you to go to Tehran. Lord, is that really you? I want you to go and I want you to preach to North Korea. I want you to go over there. I want you to find a way in. And I want you to set out an account of the judgment of God that is coming against them. Listen, we need a safe country. We believe in the safety of this country. We thank God for military. But listen, God loves the nations of this world. And we've all been enemies of Christ. And there's a difference between what the military does and what the church does 
and the church is called to spread the gospel everywhere. And sometimes God calls us into very difficult situations. Sometimes he calls us to places we simply do not want to go. So an indicator of just saying, well, the Lord wants me to go, and I just have this wonderful heart for this place, might not be like that at all. God might be calling you even to do something, and he's impressing on your heart to do something. You're saying, but I don't want to do it. And because you don't want to do it, you think that that's the work of God in your heart, but really it's just the flesh. You're just resisting what God is telling you to do. And so he is saying, I'm not going to listen to God. I'm going to go in the opposite direction, and I'm not going to go and preach to these people because in the back of his mind, he's thinking this. If I go preach judgment to these people, can you imagine somebody waking up and saying, back in the 1940s, I want you to go to Nazi Germany, and I want you to preach to Hitler? Do you know how many brave Christians and pastors stood up to that man? And said, we are, we are not going to uh, bow the knee. Somebody like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who went uh, silently to his death, and he paid the ultimate price because he said, we're not going to bow. And so we have, this, we have this situation not only then, but we have people now in very difficult situations. Look, we're not into just wanting to be martyrs. This is not just a call for all of us to just... Let's go to a place that we're all going to get killed. No, no, no. This is the specific call of God. But listen, there is a difficult call of God on your life for perhaps other things. And the Lord is speaking to your heart saying, this is what I want you to do. It's that person that you've been resisting telling the Lord about. It's going to that place or it's avoiding that place that I told you not to go to. It's listening clearly to his voice and obeying his command. So we understand why he doesn't want to go. So he paid the fare. He goes down to Joppa, verse 3. He pays the fare, and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So he pays the fare. So he goes down, and he says, I'm not listening to God. I'm going to Joppa. I'm going to get on this boat. I'm going to sail in the opposite direction, and I'm going to pay my own way. I got some money, and I'm going to buy a ticket. I'm going to pay the fare. I'm going to pay the fare. A Donald Gray Barnhouse made a big deal about this phrase here uh, in our Bibles, and he said this. It's beautiful. He said this. When you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you're going, and you always have to pay your own fare. But when you go the Lord's way, you always get to where you are going, and he pays the fare. So when we're not following the Lord, we pay our own fare, we pay our own ticket, and we think we're going to get somewhere in life. And God says, no, no, I'm going to just put you on the hamster wheel of life, and you think you're going to get somewhere, you're paying out a lot of money, and you're trying to get this thing done. It seems like you're paying out more, and you're paying out more, and you're paying out more, and you're never getting to where you want to go. Why? Because it's the call of God. So he's trying to get away from the presence of the Lord, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. So they believe in many different gods. They're crying out to God, their gods. 
And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Verse 5, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. So here he is fast asleep in the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps your God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. So here he is running from God. And by the way, our sins affect others, don't they? You know, when we sin, it's not just our sin, and it just affects us. When we sin, it affects all the people around us. And so here he is. He's not only sinning by going away from the Lord. He's not only trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. He's not just trying to run away from the Lord. But what he is doing is affecting the people on the boat with him. And so this storm comes up. It's a supernatural storm. It's from the Lord. It's from the Lord who controls all things. And they're thinking, what do we do? So they start this costly sin of Jonah. They start hurling overboard their cargo. Well, maybe if we lighten the load, these guys are freaked out. And Jonah is in the bottom of the ship, and he is asleep. I think he's asleep because he's sad. If you remember in the Gospels, the Bible says that the disciples, when they're with Jesus in the garden, that they fell asleep for sorrow. They fell asleep for sorrow. Remember when they're in the garden and Jesus is wanting them to pray with him and they're not praying and finally they just, keep, they just keep falling asleep. Jonah is tired. He's overwhelmed. He knows he's running from God. He knows that he should not be doing this. And so he's overcome. He's probably even shocked in the middle of this storm. He's not used to this thing. So he's knocked out. At the bottom of the boat, trying to run from God. And so they decide, well, we've got to do something. Let's wake him up and see if he can cry out to his God. We're crying out to our gods. Let's see what happens. And God, no matter where a person goes, he is always pursuing that person. And so he hems Jonah in. He's showing Jonah, Jonah, you can run, but you can't hide. You can keep trying to get away from me but I'm going to keep pursuing you. I've put a call on your life. I love you. This is what I've called you to do, and I'm going to keep coming after you, and I'm going to keep coming after you. It doesn't matter if you go to Spain or to the ends of the earth. Jonah, I am coming after you. He's being cornered here by God. God has a wonderful way of cornering us. And perhaps we could even listen to stories of people in this church saying, I tried to run from God, but every time I tried to run from God, he found me. And I tried to pay my own fare, and I tried to do it my own way, and I went this way, and I went that way, but everywhere I went, it was like God was right there speaking to me, cornering me, hemming me, hemming me in. Look with me at verse 7. They said to one another, come let us cast lots. This is the way Proverbs tells us that even the result of the dice, the lots, is from the Lord that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. When they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us, what is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid to him and said, what is this that you've done? Now you've got unbelievers rebuking the believer. What is this you've done? Jonah's saying, I'm running from the Lord and I know it. And they're going, what? 
Why would you run from the Lord? You've heard his voice and you're not obviously obeying him. Now he says this, verse 11, he says this. What shall we do that the sea may be quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men decide they're not going to listen. The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not, us, lay not on us his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah. They pick him up. And they hurl him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah so upset, he says, listen, guys, it's my fault. I know it's me. This is, um, he's telling them, this is a supernatural storm. This is, the origin is supernatural. It's come from the Lord. And he said, I don't want to go to Nazi Germany. I don't want to go to Iran. I don't want to go to North Korea. I don't like those people. He says, I don't like them so much. You know what? I'd rather die. I'd rather die than go there. It'd be better for me to just die here. So here's what you do. He obviously had this, this thought, came from the Lord. He said, listen, if you guys will just pick me up and you'll toss me into the sea, everything will be calm. Everything will be fine. The Lord's hemming him in. And so they're going, we don't want to do that. We don't want to kill somebody. Do you realize if we throw you into the raging sea, if we throw you into the water, you're going to die, and your blood is going to be on our hands. We don't want that. But the storm is raging, and it's raging, and they finally say, you know what? It seems like what you're saying is true. So they pick him up. What a moment. And they say, you know what? The problem is you. Sorry. Off he goes. Can you imagine that? Um, today, that'd be crazy. People would be put in jail for that. You know, on a cruise ship or something, a storm comes and somebody comes out and says it's me. So the captain throw the person overboard. Can you imagine? It'd be kind of crazy. But this actually happened. And it shows how the Lord comes after us. Just come, keeps pursuing us. He keeps, he keeps following us. Even, even to the very depths of despair. Even, even to the very bottom. See, I, I've felt the bottom before. You ever feel the bottom of life? The Lord keeps coming after, keeps coming after. Look with me at Psalm 139 again. Psalm 139, uh, verse 5. Psalm chapter 139. This is such a compassionate text of Scripture from the Lord. But verse 5 says this. You hem me in. There it is. You hem me in. Lord, I can't get away from you. You keep coming after me. You corner me, Lord. You corner me. Thank you, Lord, you're alive. You corner me. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. He knew these verses. He says this, uh, the psalmist says this, verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is, it is high. I cannot attain it. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. 
Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, or darkness as, is as light to you. Lord, where can I go? I go here, you come after me. I move to this house, you come after me. Lord, I'm not following you, and I know it. You still come after me. You still love me. You still have your call on my life. You're still, you're still coming after me. That's what he's saying. So they take him, and they lift him up, and they throw him overboard. And the Lord appointed a great fish, verse 17, to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. By the way, Jesus Christ himself believed this was a historical person. This actually happened because he said the Son of Man must be crucified and buried three days and three nights. He likened it unto the prophet Jonah. He's very clear. He thought of Jonah as a historical figure. He knew, he knew that he was real. He knew that this really happened. So as Jonah is sinking in the water, a great fish, it doesn't say a whale. It could have been a whale. We don't know. And by the way, there's been all sorts of uh, different stories down throughout the years to try to explain this. And I've looked into some of them and have read accounts of people getting swallowed by fish and getting swallowed by whales. And it is definitely possible. The problem is a lot of the stories that we have been told, even documented stories, are rather suspect. And uh, so we don't put our faith in those stories. Well, you know it's possible for a certain whale to open its mouth, you know, if it can, it can get its mouth open that big. And it's true. They, there are, are whales that you can actually go in, and the size of their stomach is the size of a, of a room. But all this goes just to say that this is a supernatural event. This is God causing this to happen, and it actually happened. And so Jonah is in the water, and all of a sudden he is... He is in the, in the depths of the sea. He is being plunged to his death. And he's been asked to pray. He's not been praying. You call it to your God for us? You call it to your God? You ever not pray? You know you need to pray, but you're not feeling like praying, so you're just like, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to pray. So what does God do? He gets us to the point where we pray. And so it took Jonah being hurled over the side of the ship for him to finally cry out to God. Now notice what chapter 2 says here. Let's go through this real quick. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. He finally prays. His God from the belly of the fish. This is, listen, if we were going to put this under the category of a doctrine, this is irresistible grace. The way that God pursues us and he draws us, he finally gets us to our knees. He gets us to the point, not where we unwillingly come to him, but where we willingly come. He never, he never works in our heart in such a way as we finally go, fine, Lord, I'll follow you. I don't want to, but I'm going to follow you. Okay? You hem me in. Uh, I get the picture. I've been running from you. I get tossed overboard. You send a fish. I'll, I'll, I'll follow you. No, no, that's not the way he works. He gets us to the point of where we say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I realize what you're doing in my life, and I want you. And we've got to get to that place of the want to, where we say, Lord, this is what we really want. We want what you want for our lives. We finally surrender to your will. Now notice what he prays here. This is, this is irresistible grace. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and he heard my voice. Can you imagine how dark it was in that belly of a fish, great fish? For you cast me into the deep. It was you, Lord, into the heart of the seas, 
and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again into your holy temple. Even though he was from the north, he was from the northern kingdom. Remember, the two kingdoms had been split up. He had evidently gone to the south and had worshipped at the holy temple. He says, I'm going to look again at your holy temple. He's in the He's in the depths of despair here, but he's crying out to the Lord, I'm going to see again, I'm going to see your face. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land where bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. Listen, this is one of the key texts about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Salvation, he says, belongs to the Lord. It's his doing. He's the one who pursues people. He's the one who comes after them to save them. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. This is irresistible grace. Now I want to close with this. Every one of our uh, texts in the, in the scriptures points us to Jesus. That's what this text is about, and that's what every text in the Old Testament, the minor prophets, they're all about Jesus. And perhaps as you're reading through this, this account, you're beginning to see Jesus in this account because even though it's a historical account it's it's pointing to one who's greater than Jonah it's pointing to the one who's going to come and be the greater Jonah the savior of the world in Mark chapter 4 if you remember Jesus was asleep in a boat remember that except Jesus isn't running from the will of God He's in the very center of the will of God. He comes and he says, I've come to do your will, O God. And he's not asleep because he's afraid and overwhelmed with sorrow. He's asleep because he's a man of peace. And he can sleep. He knows he's in control of the wind and the waves. So here he is. Here is Jesus. You have Jonah pointing to Jesus. Jesus, the greater Jonah. And Jesus is sound asleep in a boat. And then you have Jonah being lifted up and being tossed into the depths of the sea. Jesus said in John chapter 12, If I be lifted up, I will draw men to me. Then Jonah is taken and he is cast into the sea where he dies in order that his shipmates might be saved. And Jesus, who is lifted up, is thrown into the sea of death where he experienced not a near-death experience like Jonah, but he experienced an actual death, thrown into the sea where death actually covered him. The darkness overwhelmed him. The wrath of God was laid on him so that he might save all who believe. Substitutionary atonement. So in this text, we have more than just a story about a man being called to Nineveh, and we're going to dig into that more. But we have 
Jonah, who's pointing to the greater one, who's going to spend three nights, as Jesus said, these are Jesus' words, three nights and three days in the depths of the earth as a result of the crucifixion so that you and I might wake up at some point and say, he's calling me. He's calling me. Listen, this whole text, this whole thing, both of these chapters and the next two chapters and then the end of Jonah are all about the relentless pursuit of God for those whom he loves. And he's calling us. He's calling us so that we can hear his voice and know that he has died the death that we deserve so that we can live forevermore. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word uh, today that's speaking to us about a whole host of things, whether it's loving our enemies, which we're not good at, whether it's uh, preaching the gospel to people we despise, whether it's running from you. God, we could just go down the list of all the different things, but ultimately, God, this text is about how you pursue us and how your desire is for us to come to you. That's your desire. And so, Lord, I would ask if there's somebody here today that doesn't know you, that today would be the day that they say, Lord Jesus, come into my life and forgive me of my sins. And, Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers, like Jonah, who was a believer, yet he was running from you, that you would do a work of softening in believers' hearts here today, that we might hear the Father's voice, and that we might be softened and we might return to the Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.